Welcome to the podcast series Talking Success, connecting the global fintech community. I'm Stacey Jafter, and today I'll be chatting with Kirk Drake, founder and president of Ongoing Operations and author of CU 2.0. Ongoing Operations is an outsourced business continuity, disaster recovery, secure hosting, managed security, and managed telecom for financial institutions and fintech providers. Hi, Kirk. Good morning. Morning. Well, it's actually evening for me, morning for you, but welcome. <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad we got to make this happen. I know it's kind of bright and early, but you mentioned heading to the gym already. So this seems like a normal routine for you. <laughs> yeah. You know, that I probably about three, four years ago, I got really focused on, uh, I remember this uh, just funny like childhood piece where my parents were always after me to get better grades. And I was always, you know, I was like a B, B plus student. And so finally one year, yeah. about midway through high school, they're like, you know, uh, why don't you just prove to us that you can get A's? And so for one semester, <laughs> I like, was us? really disciplined and I got straight A's at the end of the semester. They're like, well, how'd that feel? I was like, that was good. Like, well, what are you going to do going forward? I'm like, I'm going right back to what I did before. That was totally not worth it. <laughs> <laughs> so ever that. since the last three, four years, I've I've been in that ape. I just decided I was like hitting my 40s. I was like, you know what? It's going to be an A year from now on and I'm going to be disciplined and I'm not going to I'm going to get up every morning mm-hmm. uh, three, three, four days a week at 530, go to the gym and just be in that discipline. So, yeah, there's this massive trend. I'm not sure if you um, look at TikTok or YouTube, but there's this massive trend on a YouTuber's daily routine. Mm-hmm. And it starts with waking up at 5 a.m., watching the sunset, an ice cold shower, and it goes on to all these <laughs> things that the billionaire does every single day. And it's a little bit comical, but um, there is some truth to it. I definitely think that waking up early gives you some more time for the day, some more time for yourself and kind of control of how you want to set out your day to be um, and getting a nice workout in. Who wouldn't like that? Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's all about the habit, right? Like I, I my goal is when I wake up when the alarm goes off, I have one rule, which is I must put on gym clothes. And then the second you have Love gym it. clothes on, you're like, I kinda have to go to the gym because it would be stupid to put on well, gym clothes so look, and immediately exactly, take a shower. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, um, Kirk, I'm a little nervous because we both seem very chatty right now, but let's just dive right <laughs> in. in. I want to hear more about your career journey and essentially what led you to build ongoing operations and then also write your book. Sure. Yeah. So uh, the, I'll try to make this brief. So uh, weirdly in high school, uh, I was asked to start a high school student bank. Um, I said no. My dad overheard the conversation and was like, because this was pre-cell phone because I'm old. Um, yeah. I was like, hey, <laughs> hey, go ahead and uh, make that call back and tell the teacher you'll do it. Um, and and then we had a long chat about you know careers and all that kind of stuff. I was probably 16 at the time. And uh, and so I, I started this high school bank in a small town in Southern Oregon. Uh, it was strangely successful. We had probably 10 times the number of accounts as the other two regional student banks that were created. Um, wow. And, and then I got to college and because I wasn't running a student bank, I suddenly had a girlfriend um, and realized that the meager thousand dollars I had saved from working at, at this bank over the summer uh, <laughs> wasn't, wasn't going to last very long in Washington, D.C. Um, and so I immediately applied for a bunch of banking jobs. Um, and nobody called me back. I started freaking out, realized I put the wrong phone number on my resume. <laughs> so, I oh applied, my. so I applied for a bunch of credit union jobs at that point. Um, cause I was too embarrassed to reapply for the same bank jobs I had applied to before. <laughs> uh, started working at a, a small credit union, fell in love with it. Turns out, uh, you know, it was the mid nineties. So if you would 
graduated high school with a computer, you were more qualified than 95% of the workforce for some reason. Yeah. Um, and so after they had me train all of the, uh, the, the credit union was converting to a PC based system. So they had me training everybody in the credit union on how to use a mouse. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> which was just wow. I just thought this is the funniest gig ever, right? Uh, and so, um, it, and it was by the way, it's exceptionally difficult to take someone who's 50, 60 years old and never seen a mouse before and teach them click versus double click, right? Like, that, oh, 100%. That is not a native instinctful thing. Um, in that I think my mother, who's in her 70s now, still can't do it quite right. Everything's a double click. So there's always two, yes. two web pages up of everything. Um, and so, uh, so I, I ended up working in this, you know, as a, a small community kind of financial institution at the U.S. Department of Agriculture um, and uh, kind of fell in love with credit unions and went to work for uh, Pfizer, which is a huge, um, one of the largest, you know, I guess, fintech companies out there. Mm. Uh, they took nine people to approve a $3 stapler. Um, oh, so wow. I was like, this oh, is wow. not for me. Um, and, uh, so efficient with their processes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, <laughs> I was 21 years old and I was just like, I, I can't see spending 50 years of my life no. you know, doing with this uh, piece of it. I'm sure they're not like that now, but um, anyways, uh, so I left and went back to working at a, a credit union that was about two, three times larger in the D.C. area. And uh, they had me basically modernize them, get them to 2000, 2001 timeframe technology wise in the first two years. And then they promoted me to CTO and said, at this point, I was 23, 24. Um, Crazy. And, <laughs> and they're like, Crazy. hey, that was awesome. Let's double down on that, and we want you to get us to the bleeding edge. So, 2001, 2002, we had this credit union had all electronic signatures, uh, not a single physical document in the organization. We were wow. all electronic. We had online banking, mobile banking on a trio, which of course didn't work at all. Every time the phone rang and you were looking at online banking, the whole thing blew up and, <laughs> and crashed. And what? Uh, we had, uh, you know, everything was fully digitized in 2002, 2003 timeframe, you know, VoIP phone centers with calls. So ahead of its time. Yeah. And, and, but I was quite honestly, I was like, okay, this is cool. Um, but I, you know, they, they came to me and said, well, Hey, if you stick around till 2037, you can retire with 65% of your income. <laughs> I was like, it's 2002. Wow. Uh, like, I don't think that's yeah, going to happen. Really. I, yeah. mm. <laughs> um, so I, uh, I decided that I would start, uh, a CUSO, which is a credit union owned, um, company because this was kind of after nine 11 and we really saw how painful doing disaster recovery was in kind yeah. of the, the old model at that time. And so this was right when VMware was like coming online and we said, well, could we get seven credit unions together that would share a virtualized platform for doing offsite backup and recoveries? Um, and kind of nobody really believed that we'd be able to do it, but we decided to kind of jump in at it. And the seven credit unions put in the seed capital and we figured out how to do that so that everybody got exactly what they knew, but it was all a shared platform from a, uh, backend resources perspective. And uh, that company grew to what o ongoing operations is today, which does disaster recovery, telecom, um, cybersecurity, you know, hosting for about 150 credit unions around the US. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I was probably, you know, 2013, 2014, 
um, started really working with a guy named Paul Fiore, who had started Digital Insight, which is, you know, IPO'd as one of the largest online banking providers and still one of the largest yeah. online banking providers out there today. And he and I started working on a concept called CU Wallet. And the credit and ownership was comfortable with me working on kind of other things um, that weren't necessarily germane to ongoing operations core business. Um, and so we created this mobile wallet platform um, that was pre-Apple Pay, uh, partnered with a company called Padient that ended up getting acquired by PayPal, uh, had Level Up integrated, had some really cool pilot cases, um, exited that and realized that I really liked the consumer-facing side of technology and fintech okay. a lot more than the back office side. And I said, all right, well, had a pretty successful launch with Ogo in my 20s. Um, See, Wallet now has worked well. I and, and I, you know, there, there's these th lessons you learn in kind of entrepreneurship. And so watching Paul work, he was just um, a, a thousand times faster. I consider myself pretty fast at making decisions. He was just like light yeah. speed in comparison. Um, and I was like, okay, this is really cool. I I really dislike the pain of finding client number one because whoever client number one is is not what the company is going to be long term, right? It's you're yeah. just in that. Let me find the first person who'll pay me to do something. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. And and so inevitably, I'm a pretty loyal person. Eventually, you have to go back to that person and be like, yeah, I sold you a sink, and I'm sorry, we make roller skates. Like, <laughs> and I've tried to keep this going as long as I can and pretend that I'm really good at making sinks, but we're not. And uh, so you've got to go find a sink from somewhere else. I love else, that analogy. Right? You know, and, um, and, and, and I don't care what startup it is, like that's always, almost always the case. And so I decided with the CU wall piece, what I really loved was client two through 100. I don't like the mature adding the discipline around who, who gets a $3 stapler Right. And I don't like the um, uh, that really painful first client kind of piece of it. Uh, and so I said, well, how do I create something that allows me to do two through 100 over and over and over again um, and be really, really good at that? Because that's the piece that, you know, that by the time you're hitting that phase as an entrepreneur, you're, you're a little tired because it took so long to find and build a product and do that. And, and now you're in the scale phase. And if I can add a ton of energy and excitement and enthusiasm around that, that would be great. And so my basic idea was if I, um, credit unions are really facing this problem of nobody really understanding um, and, be, and having difficulty communicating between boards, um, management teams, and CEOs, this mm -hmm. huge wave of fintech and kind of death by a thousand cuts where all these innovative things are stealing small pieces of their business none of which is really discernible unless you look at it at the macro level, right? And, and then you yeah. try to dive down and figure out, well, who's my competitor and what do I do about it? And it's like, oh, it's eight peer-to-peer peer -peer payment apps. I don't know how to compete <laughs> with eight things, right? Um, you know, and, and at the same time, there's eight different lending apps and eight different mortgage apps yeah. and eight different, you know, international wire apps. And each one of these things is, is really fractionalized. And so I thought, well, if I could build a platform with this book and help CEOs have the conversation with their boards and boards have it with their CEOs and CEOs with their management teams and vice versa. And instead of them having to use all their political capital on trying to explain this trend, they can just hand them a yeah. copy of the book and be like, here's this crazy guy who wrote a book on credit unions and he's saying all the same stuff that we're telling you, but it's not me, right? Um, yeah. And so that worked uh, really exceptionally well. 
uh, and uh, I really enjoyed the authorship process um, and, and that piece of it and beginning to kind of build that. And and then what that kind of evolved into, we had a lot of about 10 things that were working well, marginally well on the monetization side of things of how do we turn this into a consultancy? How do we help credit unions actually do the work in mm. that piece? And then COVID hit. Um, and oh. and sort of immediately, the, like I, I kind of replayed in my mind, you know, having seen uh, the 2008 financial crisis, uh, seeing some stuff in 2013, you know, see, you see these major events and then having been in entrepreneurs organization and uh, worked with a bunch of other, uh, like Jason Gaynard has this mastermind talks thing and you get to know really intimately a bunch of other entrepreneurs. And one of the trends I saw was, Every single month when you sit down with 10 entrepreneurs, someone has some massive flaming pile of crap that's going on, a trademark dispute, an employee dispute, a key customer left, a huge win, whatever it is, and someone's always panicking about something. Yeah, yeah. And if you get to know those people over some 10-year period of time, they always solve it. Like not once in that 10-year period of probably 100 entrepreneurs did anybody ever actually truly epically fail and not solve whatever huge crisis was in front of them. Right. Um, and so you realize most of the crisis is made up in our heads. Um, and that the number one thing you have to do is a recognize the facts, b decide to do something different about it, and then, you know, switch gears and, and go down that road. And so at the beginning of COVID, I just sat the CU2 team down and I said, hey, you know, this is going to be a two year thing. We're not doing speaking. We're not doing workshops. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've lost a couple of clients who just kind of, you know, really freaked out at the beginning of this. What is working? How would we shift our focus around those things and double down? And what new things do we need to start? Yeah. And how do we shut down a couple of things? And so we went from we probably dropped about 40% revenue at the first two weeks of COVID that three months later, we had recovered that three months later, we were 20% up and two years later, Insane. we tripled um, in that piece. And we got really clear on mission. I mean, nothing better than a crisis to give you clarity on mission and purpose, <laughs> right? And, yes. And, and so what we started the crisis with was, you know, we helped credit unions with digital transformation. What we ended with was we want to make credit unions the dominant player with fintechs, right? Um, and in that, like, transition, everything became clear. We have a fintech mastermind. Uh, where we got two thirds fintech entrepreneurs, a third credit unions that are just really building trust and common language between two worlds that don't talk, right? And that don't mm-hmm. understand each other. And then we've got this product called Fintech Launch, where we just help fintechs get their client two through 10, you know, really efficiently. And then my favorite one we did was we called a couple hundred credit unions and said, hey, we can't do um, speaking in workshops anymore, whereas, which is really where we evangelize about a lot of these different fintechs and what's going on out there. How about we just call your credit union personally once every 90 days and we just pitch you five fintechs in 30 minutes and you tell us wow. if there's any you're interested in. And we had 200 out of, or we had 199 out of 200 credit unions said, man, that would be awesome. You're basically vetting things for us in advance. So, and we don't have to talk, we don't have to spend five hours talking to five fintechs who are then going to pursue us you know, till the, till the, the, you know, for the next six months yeah. trying to sell me something. I only talk to the ones that I'm really interested in that fit my strategic plan now. Awesome. Um, and so those kind of pieces, uh, along with some custom coaching, basically really created um, CU2 as it is today and, and allow us to 
really successfully take a fintech, introduce them to credit, the right set of credit unions, finish productization, finish pricing models, figure out their marketing qualified lead metrics, sales qualified lead metrics, and and really scale that up much more efficiently. And for the credit unions, you know, they're able. To, we can bring fifty or hundred credit unions to the same platform much much faster than if you're trying to get them one by one, right? Yeah. You mentioned helping fintechs grow. Why do you feel so many struggle to scale? Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Well, I mean, it's a classic entrepreneur, you know, challenge, right? Um, mm. Which is, you know, you you spend all this energy on getting client number one, right? And you don't really know if the pricing model is right, if you're leaving money on the table, if you have the right team, if the product mm. market fit is correct. And so, um, you know, and then you're, if you, you know, what we find, there's three things that consistently demonstrate a high chance of success, which is... Uh, the person's been an entrepreneur at least one other time. Um, okay. Second, if they've already got their first credit union client, uh, and the third is if they've raised money. If they've if they've nailed those three, then their chance of being able to absorb the growth rate quickly is uh, is really. Let me take a different angle here. Um, one of the First things I thought when I was first an entrepreneur in my early 20s was that if I was successful, I would not have to change horses, that my team would be with me through mm. the entire ride. A couple of years in, after we had doubled every year for four or five straight years, I was like, oh, it turns out whether you're successful or you're failing, you're going to have to change horses, right? Mm. Because people can't necessarily, who you hire on day one to do a task isn't necessarily who you need three years later. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And so once I kind of realized that the outcome was the same, that my job was really to make that a respectful and high integrity transition and exciting thing for everybody involved, almost like an experience as opposed to, hey, you know, we hired you to make sinks and you're really good at making sinks, but, you know, we're in, it's the same problem with that first client. You got to go back to that first employee and be like, yeah, we're in the roller skate business now, right? And mm. I know you're <laughs> amazingly good at making ceramic sinks, but we need people who are really good at putting wheels on things, right? Um, yeah. And either you've got to transition over to this, we'll, we'll help you do that, or, you know, I, I, I need to go find someone who can. The person either is going to say, hell yeah, sign me up for the training, or, you know, uh, I, I'm not really interested in putting wheels on things. Right. Mm -hmm. And if they're not interested in putting wheels on things, that's fine. Right. Like they, you have to be true to what the thing is becoming. And, exactly. And, and I think if you've done that doubling every year for two, three years, you have this extent, existential problem, which is you went from sinks to roller skates to roller blades to, uh, you know, battery powered roller skates. 
Yeah. (laughs) And in those four transitions, that poor person has been asked to reinvent themselves four times. Sure, sure. (laughs) And people only have so much capacity for that. Exactly. So it's it's clearly important to understand the market fit. You've mentioned this a few times. What's your advice for businesses in this phase? So I, I mean, I think certainly for for fintechs looking to partner with credit unions, understanding there's t- two big pieces I end up coaching on. So one of which is most people come in and think of why people are in business as as for profit organizations, and so therefore they approach credit unions with, "Hey, here's um, here's something that's going to make you more money." Uh, and mm-hmm. the, in, in most businesses, if you think about the motivation, it's kind of net income, um, personal gain, customer satisfaction, then balance sheet, right? Um, it's kind of a long-term exit strategy or something in that regard. Credit unions, because they're nonprofits and they sit on capital, um, and, or they're not for profits, I should say, not nonprofits, um, they, they look at the world backwards. So uh, they tend to think of it as what's the balance sheet problem that the regulator is pushing me on. Either I have too much mm-hmm. deposits or too much loans, right? And I've got to fix that ratio. Um, that's the first criteria. Second criteria, because none of the employees own a piece of this thing, right? Um, their only way at really improving their lot in life is either to get an increase in pay, which usually comes through efficiency and performance, or to work less, right? And be able to do more yeah. on behalf of the people, which is Again, an efficiency thing. So you have to. So their second big criteria is employee satisfaction, employee life improvement. Their third thing, because they're mission-driven organizations, is the member impact and how it's going to impact your average consumer. The last thing is net income, mm-hmm. right? And if it meets mm-hmm. the first three criteria, the fourth thing has to, you know that can also be yeah, true. Yeah. Th- then that's great. And so. When you look at that dichotomy of what most businesses are designed for versus how credit unions look at the world, there's a a mismatch in what we think the audience actually is is interested in, and you have to re- mm. reframe that in the eye of the the customer. Um, the second big piece that I always like to talk about is um, if we think about your company as a movie, right? Um, movies have story arcs that are related to the, the, the core character. So uh, the, the mass, if, you, if we look at the Hollywood hits, they always follow the same basic formats, right? Of comedies, of tragedies, of dramas, yeah, of actions, yeah. right? And anytime a producer devolt, you know, changes from that core trajectory, <laughs> we hate the ending, right? Because yeah. it doesn't match our expectations. And so exactly. there's 12 different archetypes. It's really important to understand if you're Indiana Jones, Right, you are the you're the the <laughs> the guy who has to ascend the big bad evil thing, right? Yeah. And and if you create your launch story and your vision, most of the time, what happens is the entrepreneur goes, "Hey, this cool thing just happened. I just hired my friend Bob, and I convinced him to come on board. And then I signed this client for making sinks. Um, and then you know we raised a little capital, and then we hired employee number four, five, and six, right? And then it happened to be that we signed customer number two who wants roller stakes. So now I got two two clients. And, and as you look at this, it's, they release these things completely out of order, right? Um, in, in terms of that story arc, what they release is each one of these successive things that they've been working really hard at and they're successful at. And if you're the audience watching this movie, it's like reading a Harry Potter book, chapter one, chapter four, chapter 19, chapter two, like it makes no sense. Right you know, to the outside. I'm loving world. these analogies. <laughs> right? And so, so the key part of that first 
three, four month launch is really to announce nothing and to be in stealth mode. And then once you're out of stealth mode, put all of these great things that have happened in the order of the story arc that makes sense to your hero's journey, your sage Gandalf person, whatever it is, because that's how your audience is looking to digest it. And if it follows that, it resonates and it creates brand accretion yeah. and, and, and loyalty. Yeah. And there's a, if it doesn't do that, then it goes the completely other way. And it actually exactly. you know, devolves into, oh my God, I don't know where the story's going. So interesting. I've got a question. Yeah. So you're a serial entrepreneur. How do you come up with your business ideas or are you more of an implementer? I am. So I think there's two phases. Um, I'm really good as an implementer integrator from for the first 10 million of revenue. I'm a okay. I'm not I'm a complete visionary once I get past 10 million in revenue. Um, uh-huh. I, I don't know why that is. I just know that there's that two, two phase piece of it. And I have to get out of the okay. operational discipline, you know, as the company sk- begins to scale. Um, most of my ideas are the result of conversations, interactions and kind of riffing with friends, other entrepreneurs, you know, bitching about something and and they yeah. just come out of that. And then usually my test is um, sort of designing a solution to that problem. And I, I always say like, what you really want to do is put the solution down on a piece of paper, the problem and the solution, do not put a price on it, do not put any other details about it other than like, you know, what it is and what you think the problem is and define the why as much as you can. And then put that in yeah. front of five or 10 people. Your friends will all lie to you and say, this is amazing, <laughs> right? Uh, you should do this. Or, you know, however, if I not- I need to get new friends, clearly. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I should say, and your family will tell you the truth. Unfortunately, they'll lie to you the there other way go. and tell you all of them are bad <laughs> there ideas. There we go. Right? <laughs> They're all bad ideas, like every other idea you've had. <laughs> um, uh, and, and, but the real test is, if not one person says, how much will this cost? <laughs> then it actually has no value and no one's willing to pay for sure. it, in which case you don't have a business, right? You have an interesting okay. idea. And so that how much test to me, once I figure that out and and get that kind of early stage prototyping done, then I start really refining and coming up with MVP and driving into that next phase of things. Okay. Is there anything else you do to choose which business ideas to pursue and which not to? Um so I, I, one of the other exercises I, I do tend to go through, and again, it depends on how you're creating the business, um, is uh, um, is trying to really understand, is the market big enough, right? Because one of my early ideas, I built this networking group of chief technology officers of credit unions called credit union chief technology officers. We got 25 people in, everybody was paying, I don't know, $1,000 a year. It was kind of a side hustle. And I went and did the math and said, well, if I crushed it and got 7% of credit unions to have their CTOs involved in this networking organization, it turns out it worked out to like $150,000 a year. Okay. <laughs> right. okay. At which point I went, yeah. okay, that, that doesn't, doesn't, doesn't actually have any potential. Doesn't make sense, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think understanding what market you're going after, how big it is, and 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 that what I call the seven percent test, right? Like, is this big enough to actually that if I got seven percent of this market, because at seven percent you start to have some different dynamic market forces around pricing, you know, moats, uh, key intellectual property, and those types of things. So, could I see it getting to seven percent of that market? And then the second piece is how much capital would it take to get to seven percent? Yeah, and is that okay. something I think I can go get? 
Okay. Love it. Have you seen any trends in the businesses that have been a success and those that haven't? You mentioned those that have gotten funding, um, have gotten signed up one credit union. Is there anything else in business in general that you've seen to be a trend? Um, You know, it's... uh, the the person makes a huge difference, right? Like, um, Always. You, you know, like I, I don't, I wish it wasn't the case, right? But there's something where, you know, that killer attitude and that, you know, I'm going to be irrational and try to do something that everybody tells me I can't over and over and over again, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, the, those folks, you know, that that's a trend I consistently see. Um, the, is there anything specific in a person? Is it um, motivation? Is it inspiration? Is it quirky? Is there anything that you've noticed where you're like, yes, you have it? I think um, it's it's probably the ability to dream big, but to focus, right? Mm. And, and focus is, this, this took me a long time to figure out for me was focus isn't about um, what you're going to do. It's about what you're not going to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, because it's really hard to say yes. It, it's easy to say yes to everything and to work really hard. It's really hard to say that doesn't fit. Sinks aren't my thing, <laughs> right? Like yeah, I can't yeah. get passionate about that. And as much as the emotional pain is to to accept that I'm not going to be the sink guy, uh, I got to go have those tough conversations and do that. Um, th- that's probably the that big vision plus the focus and and self awareness. I think is a huge. Uh, that emotional intelligence of really realizing what you can and can't do and who else needs to be on the bus with you. Um, I, I, the, those are probably the biggest things that I see uh, people struggle with early, whether they're trying to do it all or not. They have trust issues or or those are the things that have helped, yeah. held me up. Kirk, so helpful. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. First of all, I've learned so much. I feel <laughs> inspired personally. So thanks again. My pleasure. Yeah, it's awesome. Where's, where's the best place for listeners to reach you? Yeah, absolutely. You can uh, reach me on LinkedIn, uh, just Kirk, Kirk Drake out there, or you can always email me at kdrake at cu-2.com and I'm pretty responsive there too. Awesome. Thanks again, Kirk. My pleasure. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Talking Success, Connecting the Global Fintech Community. Feel free to follow us on LinkedIn at Talent in the Cloud. And if you're interested in exec talent, expanding your team, or you yourself are looking for a new, exciting change in your career, check out our website, talentinthecloud.io.